Hi everyone, I'm Jen Malott and thanks for joining us for Essential Antitrust. The economy is still recovering from the pandemic and technology continues to develop at a rapid pace. Now at the same time, we've seen an uptick in fintech M&A with a total global deal value of approximately 40 billion in the first half of 2021 alone. Now at the same time, we're seeing antitrust authorities all over the world take an even stricter approach to M&A involving tech companies, including fintech companies often focusing on what are called killer acquisitions. Foreign investment authorities have also started taking a closer look at these transactions, focusing on the types of data that are held by fintech companies and also on their involvement in important financial infrastructure. Now, fortunately, I'm joined by three experts today to talk us through all of this. At first, we have Rod Carlton, who's a partner in our antitrust practice who works across London and Brussels. Hi, Rod. Hi there, Jen. Next, we have Christine Lasiak, who's a special counsel at our Washington office, who has a particular focus on the U.S. CFIUS regime and foreign investment reviews. Hi, Christine. Hi, Jen. And finally, we have Cyrus Pocha, a partner in our financial services regulatory group, who is also the co-head of our global fintech group. Hi, Cyrus. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Rod, maybe I can kick it to you to start. I mean, I've mentioned that we are seeing increased antitrust scrutiny of these transactions. When we look at, at merger control regimes, what are we really talking about when we say more scrutiny? What's changed in recent years? Yeah, good question, Jen. I mean, taking the UK as an example, our Competition and Markets Authority has referred no less than five FinTrack transactions for a phase two review over just the last three years. So that means an in-depth probe lasting sort of 12 to 16 months. And the authorities aren't just looking at pure fintech to fintech transactions. They're also particularly interested in deals where more established financial institutions or big tech players have been expanding into the fintech space. You also mentioned killer acquisitions just now, which have been a big theme globally amongst antitrust authorities in the UK, Europe, the US. And let's just start by understanding what we mean by killer acquisitions. This is where an incumbent provider buys a startup or a scale-up business that, in an antitrust authority's view, has the potential to be a strong future competitor to the incumbent or to threaten the incumbent's business model in the future. So, a disruptor. And by buying up this new kid on the block, the incumbent, the theory goes, nips the competitive threat in the bud and secures its long-term business model and profitability. And authorities are looking at this sort of transaction or this point more broadly. So even if, absent the merger, this startup or scale-up business would not necessarily have gone on to be a super strong competitor, antitrust authorities will nonetheless examine whether the short or medium-term loss of dynamic competition or innovation competition, as you might think of it, whether that loss of competition resulting from the merger is a problem because the loss of competitive tension in that period could just mean that the incumbent is less likely to innovate. And that's something the CMA has, for example, put an increased focus on in its recent updated merger assessment guidelines not just in fintech, but across all sectors. 
So to get transactions that are at risk of being viewed as a killer acquisition cleared, parties should really develop a pro-competitive rationale for the transaction and make sure their documents and their valuation models are clean, as it were. So that, in other words, they don't suggest that the deal is driven by a desire to fend off or to snuff out future competition. But that's not to say that just having clean documents is a get-out-of-jail-free card, because authorities will still assess the party's economic incentives especially for deals which have big headline values. And if those incentives appear to be odds with what seem to be virtuous internal documents, documents that suggest that there's no intent to take out a key competitor, yet where the valuation for the business seems to be disproportionately large to the target's uh, small current scale, well, there the authority might well discount the evidential value of these supposedly sort of virtuous internal documents. Just a couple of other points. The focus on killer acquisitions is likely to continue to be a really important feature in competition law generally and fintech m in particular. Not least given the UK's government's recently launched consultation on reforming competition and consumer policy in the UK, which notably proposes the addition of a new jurisdictional threshold, giving the authority the power to review transactions which could be killer acquisitions in intent, but until now might have escaped scrutiny because they were too small. In similar vein, at EU level, there have been changes to the jurisdictional referral mechanism under Article 22 of the merger regulation, in order to catch and to put into the EU's hands, as opposed to national member states' hands, suspected killer acquisitions. Acquisitions of small but competitively significant companies can be referred by national authorities around Europe up to the European Commission in Brussels, even where they fall below the EC turnover thresholds, and even where the transaction falls below national merger thresholds. That's a big development. You know, thanks, Rod. I think that's a really clear summary of what's happening on the on the European side of the pond. I think it's worth noting that in the US, we're seeing a really similar series of developments where both the DOJ and the FTC have signaled an increased scrutiny, both of fintech type acquisitions, but also one specifically that involved killer acquisitions. And we see this from what we're hearing from the leadership of the enforcement agencies in the U.S. So, you know, there was an October speech from the uh, deputy antitrust assistant attorney general at the DOJ, where he noted that there had been an increase in transactions in the financial space that involved acquisitions of nascent competitors, which is this sort of killer acquisition point that Rod was talking about. And he said that the DOJ will be, quote, vigilant to make sure that traditional business models are not using acquisitions to improperly frustrate innovation and harm consumers. So, you know, a pretty clear statement there on what the DOJ's intent is in this area. And we're seeing cases to this effect in the U.S. as well. So the DOJ investigated two high-profile fintech transactions in 2020, one of which is Visa Plaid, which we've talked about on this podcast previously, 
Um, and that transaction um, was ultimately abandoned by the parties in face of the DOJ's challenge. On the other hand, the DOJ also investigated MasterCard's acquisition of Finicity, um, and ultimately it cleared that transaction without any remedies in November of last year. And so, you know, I think it's important to note here that this isn't a case of all these transactions being dead in the water. Uh, this means that it's really important to have the strategy set up front. And, you know, in that regard, I think it's also interesting to note that the DOJ antitrust division actually reorganized itself last year to account for the increased focus in the financial services sector. So they've consolidated review of transactions that involve financial services, credit cards, banking, et cetera, all under a new section that's called the financial services, fintech, and banking section. So the idea there is to get a group of people at the DOJ that are really specialized and focused on, on this area and know this sector well. But, you know, Rod, I mean, both of us have been talking a lot about this killer acquisition point, but I think even if antitrust authorities really tried, they wouldn't plausibly be able to frame every single fintech transaction as a killer acquisition. Not every fintech transaction involves a nascent competitor. Are there other theories of harm that companies in this sector need to be watching out for? Yes, indeed, Jen. I mean, there are other policy points driving uh, agency interest in fintech M&A, such as the fact that these are nascent markets where authorities are more eager to take a closer look to ensure that markets don't develop in a way that leads to a concentrated market structure. So a recurring theme is just an assessment of whether access to data is a barrier to entry in digital markets. That's a recurring theme across uh, sectors. And so in fintech deals, businesses should expect authorities to consider such novel data-related theories, including whether data from the fintech provider could enable the acquiring company in this M&A deal to cement its market position or more readily expand into related markets, and whether restrictions on accessing data held by the combined business could actually stifle nascent players who somehow would need access to that data. And again, in the UK, I think it's noteworthy that the CMA has teamed up with other regulators uh, through its Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, motivated in part to deepen the CMA's knowledge of data economics. And I think we need to expect increasingly novel and challenging data theories of harm to be raised in the transaction reviews. That's a good point, Rod. And I think it's also worth noting that another place that we're seeing antitrust regulators be a bit more expansive is with respect to the counterfactual that they're applying in these fintech transactions. And, you know, typically authorities look at a counterfactual based on the conditions that they see in the relevant market at the time of the transaction. But more recently, even looking outside of fintech, we've seen authorities, and I think especially the CMA, uh, look at extremely complex counterfactuals. Um, So there's a, a greater interest in kind of crystal ball gazing about what might happen, especially with respect to entry and expansion plans of the merging parties that suggest that either might have expanded its own operations or become a stronger player absent the acquisition. 
or if the target company might have been otherwise sold to an alternative purchaser that would have presented fewer antitrust issues and would have resulted in a different competitive position relative to what the present transaction would lead to. And I think, you know, in that scenario, the competition authorities often adopt positions that can completely cut across how the target company views its own prospects and what the actual auction situation looked like for the target um, when they put themselves up for sale. And so that's something that can actually be very challenging from a purchaser's perspective to manage, both because it's always hard to say what would have happened if the deal, if this particular deal didn't materialize, but also because the purchaser may just not have visibility into what the target's other options were. Yeah, Jen, it's really interesting to hear you talk about, you know, more detailed and more in-depth discussions around theories of harm and the counterfactual, because I think it's always struck me that in this space in particular, new regulation must also change the counterfactual or, or at least make it a more complicated conversation. Now, the regulatory landscape in the fintech space is changing so fast uh, I, don't, I don't think there is another sector in financial services which is seeing quite the same influx of new regulation and and not not just new regulation, but regulators grappling with with how to regulate this space uh, in, in the first place. Uh, and some fintech companies will be able to adapt to the new regulations, but you know other business models won't. And so today's competitors may no longer be tomorrow's competitors once these changes have flown through the system. And there's a clear overlap here with, with the antitrust analysis, it seems to me, because, you know, in this respect, what firms are able to do going forward will be based in their ability to, to adapt. Just, just a couple of examples. I mean, in Europe, uh, the, the markets in crypto assets regulation looks set to bring you know, a very broad regulatory overlay to all forms of crypto assets. And in the UK, you know, in a slightly less dramatic context, it's also consulting to bring uh, stable coins that are used as a means of payment into the regulatory tent. Yeah. And, and Cyrus, maybe just to pick up on this point you've made about firms' reaction to all of this. I mean, Rod, I assume that in the UK, with all these changes, we're not just seeing companies twiddle their thumbs and say, oh, thank you, we welcome this more aggressive enforcement. So what are you actually seeing companies do in, in response to these changes? Well, that's a fair point, um, Jen. And I'm bound to say that on the UK side, we've had a few, shall we say, rather pointed public comments from industry and also from uh, other stakeholders. So in the wake of the CMA's recent decision to block the proposed merger of a company called Cedars with a competing equity uh, crowdfunding firm. Their CEO told the Times newspaper, and I quote, the hostility we encountered from the beginning of the process was really quite shocking. The CMA's decision to block the Crowdcube Cedars merger followed hot on the heels of the so-called Khalifa review of UK fintech, which was a review commissioned by the UK Treasury. And the review also made critical comments about the CMA's policy towards fintech transactions. I mean, just to pick out one statement, they say, the CMA must adapt its approach to this complex sector in order to better balance competition, 
and growth. There's a case for more flexibility and some consolidation will therefore be critical in facilitating the growth that UK fintechs need in order to become global champions. The CMA's mandate must reflect these market dynamics. So as you say, Jen, there has been quite a bit of pointed comment about the more aggressive enforcement environment. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, Rod, because, you know, the financial services regulators are to some extent grappling with exactly the same issue, getting that balance right between fostering competition, making the UK an attractive marketplace, with particularly in the case of the FCA, their sort of non-negotiable obligation to protect consumers and markets from harm. And this has led to different approaches being taken in different geographies. I mentioned a moment ago the EU markets and crypto assets regulation. That is incredibly broad. It effectively brings the entire market under a new regulatory regime akin to MIFID, which is the existing regime for financial instruments. You know, that's very different to the way the UK has approached things and that they are still, I think, of the view that less regulation fundamentally helps competition. And that can be seen by the very limited scope of their consultation in the context of stablecoins used for a means of payment. Thanks, Cyrus. Um, You know, I want to move on, Christine, to your part of the world. So, you know, I think companies have dealt with merger control risk for a long time. And even if they're maybe not used to the uptick in enforcement happening now, they're used to the regimes. But that's not necessarily the case for foreign investment regimes, which have just sort of exploded all over the world in the last couple of years. Can you, you know, I know a lot of these regimes are relatively new, but what can you tell us about the extent to which they capture fintech acquisitions and what kind of issues those regulators are looking for? Yeah, Jen, I think foreign investment review authorities look, you know, at a target's key assets and capabilities, uh, which, you know, if they fell into the wrong hands, uh, could be exploited uh, in a way that poses a national security risk. And that's true regardless of the industry that the that the target's in. So historically speaking, foreign investment review regimes didn't tend to focus so much on financial industry players. But if you look at those regimes through today's lens, where there's sort of an, an ever-broadening concept of what actually constitutes a national security risk, we can see, you know, a number of vulnerabilities that are inherent in fintech targets. It was interesting listening to the discussion of how competition authorities view the accumulation of data to present a competitive threat, because, you know, the foreign investment review authorities may view foreign ownership of a company uh, that's accumulated particularly sensitive data or, you know, sort of even a mega mega amount of not particularly sensitive data, if you think about TikToks, to present, you know, a national security concern. In the U.S., it's such, a, it's such an issue that there's special jurisdictional and mandatory filing rules that are applicable to the acquisition of a company that has sensitive personal data. And many of the EU regimes also have uh, special rules for, for data companies. But... You know, beyond the data, fintech companies' technology and services or services may actually form a critical part of a country's insurance or banking or retail or payments infrastructure. 
And most foreign investment review authorities today focus on the foreign acquisition of what they call critical infrastructure. And and that's defined in, in different ways under different regimes, but it almost always includes certain components of a country's financial infrastructure network. You know, as an example, in the U.S., certainly providers of of the key infrastructure that supports, you know, what we might consider a traditional financial liquidity, say a clearinghouse, right, that constitutes critical infrastructure. I think what will be interesting to watch is the extent to which sort of, you know, crypto asset, asset service providers will not only be subject to the kind of increasing regulation that Cyrus was discussing, but ultimately may be deemed critical under, under some of these regimes. And I think the, um, the last sort of the final area is technology, because these, these fintech companies have pretty sophisticated software. And that software, you know, is often going to incorporate proprietary cryptographic authentication or cybersecurity or AI technologies And all of those are recurring themes or recurring triggers for the application of foreign investment review regimes. So I think if you take sort of these industry-specific factors and you combine them with sort of the broader uh, considerations there are with respect to sort of policy and economic factors that are all accelerating the expansion of foreign investment review regimes generally, you can expect that you know, transactions in the fintech space are going to come under increasing scrutiny from foreign investment review authorities. Could I just jump in here? Because I think, Christine, you're making a very important point that illustrates how important it is for deal doers to appreciate the pace of change in the landscape of foreign investment regulation. It really is changing around the world very quickly So much so that if you are planning a deal which is going to have a long period between signing and completion because there are financing other conditions, there's a long, you know, antitrust merger control process, you could actually find that in that gap, new foreign investment regimes can enter into force in a country which is relevant to your transaction during that time and thereby sort of create new, an additional deal hurdle that needs to be overcome in that jurisdiction. That's just how fast things are moving and how complex the uh, environment is these days. I think that just goes straight to the point that we've been making to clients in the context of regulation more generally in this space, Rod. You know, exactly the point that you made around some of these transactions taking a long time to complete in an environment where, you know, regulation is moving so quickly that actually, you know, the closing regulatory environment may be very different from the signing one. And I think that just goes to emphasise the importance when doing these deals of sensibly and methodically future gazing to the extent you can, so that you can see what is coming down the track and make allowance for it either in your deal terms or, or frankly, in your investment thesis as to whether that the deal makes good market sense in the first place. We've talked already about some of the changes that are coming down the pipe in Europe and and the UK, which will clearly impact those sectors significantly once they come into force or or once the the, the final rules are made known. The the EU is also looking 
at detailed and comprehensive frameworks on digital operational resilience in EU financial services entities, what's referred to as DORA. And that's, you know, for the first time going to bring rules addressing ICT risk into finance together into a single piece of legislation. And, you know, that's another example of what you end up buying on closing, looking rather different from what you perhaps signed up to uh, on signing. Yeah, and Cyrus, listening to you um, talk about that, I mean, it's clear that this sort of moving landscape with all these new regulation could create a lot of uh, challenges and difficulties for fintech firms, but surely it must also create some opportunities for firms that are able to sort of play with all that change. Are you seeing that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right, Jen. And, and we are seeing that uh, increasingly uh, with deals that are coming through the door. I mean, new regulation can make it more difficult for certain companies to continue operating, which clearly creates deal-making opportunities in relation to those entities. But also, you know, thinking about this more from a from an antitrust context, uh, the you know, from the perspective of getting your deal through competition authorities, it must be the case that there's some good advocacy to made around the impact of changing regulatory environments. You know, for example, if it becomes apparent that a target is not going to be able to comply with new stricter regulatory requirements unless it is, you know, b- bought by a more experienced buyer, then that becomes a strong advocacy point, it seems to me, to put to competition authorities. Absolutely right, Cyrus. And that is a point that the competition authorities are bound to take into account. I think it's fair to say that they would be sceptical if a buyer raises that point or the target. They may say, well, you would say that. But actually, if the evidence is on balance, that regulation is going to be so onerous for the new for the target that the target company might be able to survive it in the long term, might not be able to compete effectively anymore. Well, as the authority has to take account of that, in particular, if there's evidence that the target is going to exit the market um, in those circumstances, you know, unless the target is brought by an experienced or more experienced or um, financially uh, secure purchaser, then, you know, the authority is left at the prospects of if it blocks the deal, it causes this, uh, the, this company to exit the market. And that can't be right. So there's a real question of legitimacy around competition authority intervention in this area. Thanks, Rod. Um So, look, I mean, we've all talked a lot about the risks in merger control and foreign investment in regulation in this area. I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up about what role good contract drafting can play here to mitigate some of these risks. And I think, you know, most people listening will be very familiar with the ways that we deal with antitrust merger control risks in contracts. So, Christine, maybe I'll start with you because some of these foreign investment regimes are so new. How do you think about all of these issues when it comes time to put pen to paper on an SPA? Yeah, I think, I guess, let's step back and sort of consider what the main you know, foreign investment risks to a transaction are. Uh, there's certainly the, the possibility that your closing could be delayed because there's pretty long and unpredictable review timetables. I think an example actually comes from the fintech space of uh, Genworth Financial, which was a U.S. company uh, being acquired by China Oceanwide, and and that took 
you know, nearly two years uh, and involved some pretty significant remedies. More recently, we've seen a lot more mandatory filing requirements uh, than there used to be in the, in the foreign investment review space. So now you have to consider that pretty closely and provide for that in the contract because a failure to submit a mandatory filing you know, can result in the transaction being void or uh, other, can trigger other sanctions. And then failure to submit a filing voluntarily can result in the authorities using uh, their call-in powers uh, either pre- or post-closing. You know, in the U.S. in particular, we're seeing a pretty significant uptick in uh, post-closing call-ins. So it's something you need to seriously, you know, consider uh, a little more closely uh, whether you want to go ahead and provide for those voluntary filings. And then, of course, you know, it's just like in the in the competition space, the transaction may be subject to remedies or, you know, sort of exceptionally, there's some cases, of course, that are that are blocked outright. And so the most prominent uh, fintech transaction that was uh, publicly blocked is probably the sale of MoneyGram to Ant Financial, which, again, uh, was a case involving a U.S. target and a, uh, and a Chinese acquirer. So, you know, typically what companies do when they're sort of anticipating that there's going to be, you know, some foreign investment review considerations is, you know, start you know, your diligence uh, pretty early because you need to pin down where there's going to be filings. Uh, And the foreign investment review space, it ends up being a kind of a two-way diligence because it's not, you know, just for the buyer to target the diligence, but a seller, you know, particularly in an auction, should be diligencing, of course, uh, the potential buyers to figure out uh, any foreign investment review sensitivities just like you sort of diligence your buyers uh, for potential competitive overlaps. You also need to consider, you know, the the drafting of your transaction document. You know, um, Rod was discussing, you know, if a deal requires a pretty long merger control process, uh, then things may change between signing and closing, and you're going to need to include provisions for that in your contract. Um, and just like in the in the competition space, it's of course uh, always necessary to have a positive uh, narrative to present to your authorities. And increasingly now, as there's a much more proliferation of foreign investment review regimes, global coordination is really key, both among your your parties uh, and your advisors. Thanks, Christine. Um, and I think that about wraps it up on everything going on in the in the fintech space. And so I want to say thank you to Rod and Christine and Cyrus for joining me today and talking us through the impact that all of this increased regulatory scrutiny is going to have on fintech M&A. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, next month, we will have an episode of our Essential Foreign Investment series, bringing you all the latest development in foreign investment. And then we'll be back to you the month after with another edition of Essential Antitrust. Thanks a lot.